Hey, it's Mason, the lead pastor here at Normandale. We're glad that you're listening today to one of our sermons. Our hope is that it is encouraging for you as you seek to know Jesus better. And if you're helped by this sermon, we want to invite you to support the ongoing ministry of Normandale. You can do that by going to normandale.org give. And thanks. Let's pray, and then we'll get started. Father, we come to you this morning thanking you that you are the God of the universe. Thank you that we can come here and worship and celebrate and praise your name uh, in freedom and in uh, safety and in the presence of brothers and sisters who know us and love us. Lord, I pray that you would grant me the ability to speak your truth this morning and to not get in the way of what you want to teach. I pray that you'll be with each of us, Lord God, and that you'd give us ears to hear, that you'd give us hearts to listen, and souls thirsting for you. Father, we pray this in the name and the power of Jesus Christ. Amen. It's been quite a journey for Frodo and Sam. Ever since they left their home, they've encountered more wonders and dangers than they could have possibly imagined. The battle at Weathertop, the flight to the Ford, the beauties of Rivendell, the dark mines of Moria where they lost their beloved Gandalf. Their fellowship has fallen apart. Their friends are now far away on another part of the journey. In the shadow of Mordor, they've come. Two little hobbits and their cooking gear on a journey to save the world. It's at this point that Sam says, I wonder what sort of tale we have fallen into. Sam couldn't have asked a better question. He assumes that there is a story, something larger going on. He also assumes that they have somehow tumbled into it and been swept up in it. What sort of tale I have fallen into is a question that would help each of us if we would ask that of ourselves. It might just be the most important question we ever ask. Thus begins the prologue of John Eldridge's epic. It's a book in which he likens life to a story and proposes that there's an even bigger story written by God and that each of us plays a part in it. Do you ever think about that? Do you ever think about life being a story? I mean, I think, I think your life is a story. Now, sometimes in the midst of that story, we wish we could flip to the back page and kind of see how it all turns out, but we can't. To get to the end, you have to get up every morning and enter into the story. Moment by moment, day by day, we turn the pages and find out what happens next. Now, our story contains all the elements of an epic tale. Romance, uh, adventure, uh, danger, all those things. There are plot twists in our lives that surprise us. Sometimes they're good surprises, sometimes they're bad surprises. They're cliffhangers. 
Cliffhangers that worry us, some cliffhangers that excite us. There are tense moments of danger, but there's also heroic rescues. We live in the midst of a story. Now, our story, though, is part of a much bigger story, a story that's written by the author of the universe. Now, in popular culture, we tend to uh, elevate the universe above the author. We say, well, the universe gave me a sign. The universe told me this. The universe gave me that. But the universe is not the author. It's not even the story. The universe is the backdrop, the setting for the story. The real story, the story that matters, is being woven word by word, paragraph by paragraph, by the author. And the author is God himself. And he created you to be a part of that story. He created you for a purpose, for a role in the story of his creation. As you enter into it, you discover that your perp- what you, you discover what your purpose is, not by looking inward toward yourself, but by listening to the author, letting him reveal to you your role and your purpose as he tells the tale. Today is. Mason mentioned we're beginning the summer series in which we uh, are, are each of the elders is talking about a parable. Now, parables are stories. They're little stories that meet us where we are. And they help us understand God's big story and what our role is in it. Today, we're looking at Matthew chapter 22, the first 14 verses, the parable of the wedding feast. Now, as we read this, I want you to consider this question. How does this story speak into your life, into your story? Matthew 22. Once more, Jesus spoke to them in parables. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to summon those invited to the banquet, but they didn't want to come. Again, he sent out other servants and said, tell those who were invited, see, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatted cattle have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and then went away. One to his own farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged and he sent out his troops, killed those murderers, and burned down their city. Then he told his servants, the banquet is ready, but those who were invited are not worthy. Go then to where the roads exit the city and invite everyone you find to the banquet. So those servants went out on the roads and gathered everyone they found, both evil and good. The wedding banquet was filled with guests. When the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man who was not dressed for a wedding. So he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told his attendants, take him, tie him up hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. All right, so let's recap. Let's pretend we're Tara Lee Cobble for a minute and have a recap. I don't know if that's a... One of the Bible readings you've done or not. But anyway, Janet does that. and I get to hear Tara Lee a lot. 
So the king, this king is giving a wedding feast for his son. It's a big affair. We're not talking, you know, cheese whiz on Ritz crackers in the fellowship hall, with a little cake on the side. We're talking about a big, long, week-long celebration. Food, wine, or grape juice, if you're Baptist, and dancing. Maybe not dancing if you're Baptist. But these people weren't Baptist, so it doesn't matter. Okay? It's a week-long deal. It's a big deal. This is, a, this, you know, this is the king's son's wedding. This is a royal wedding. Okay? For us, it would be like being invited to a White House wedding. Now, I don't know about you, but if I ever get invited to the White House, I'm going. I don't care what party the guy belongs to. You know, if I get the invitation, I'm there. But these guests didn't react that way. These guests, they refused to come. Now, this wasn't like a last-minute affair. These guys didn't, you know, all of a sudden go, oh, wow, he's throwing a party? Well, we can't go. I mean, this is like a first-century save-the-date card. They've, they've known that this was happening. They still refused to come. So you see, this, since they knew it was going to happen and they refused to come, this isn't like a, oh, well, really sorry, I'll catch you next time. This is an, an affront to the king. This is an insult. But even after they refused, the king sends his servants out again to invite them again. And again, they refuse. Now, the first group just kind of ignores him. They make some flimsy excuses about, oh, I got this field I got to look at, and I got this business I need to run, and you know, the, the, the kind of excuses that say, I don't want to go, but I don't want to come out and tell you I don't want to go. Those kind of excuses. Not that you've ever made those, but still. You know, the next group is a bit more aggressive. They really don't want to go to the wedding. And they have no problem saying it. So when they get the invitation, they take the servants and they mistreat them and then they kill them. The king, of course, is not real happy about this. So the king sends his, uh, sends his soldiers and they execute judgment on these murderers and they're killed and their cities burned to the ground of course after this happens there's no more guests so since the king wants to really honor his son he wants to have a big celebration he sends his servants out on the highways and the byways and invites anyone who will come it says that they the servants invite the uh the bad and the good alike these people don't have to produce a pedigree or a ticket or a voucher. They don't have to make some grand gesture or do some great task. The invitation is at the pleasure of the king. So, that's the story. But every story, every parable has a certain key truth in it that allows us to understand what the story is about. What the truth is that God is telling us. And in case you missed it, that key truth of this is that the king is the almighty God. Now, in our culture, modern culture today, we need to understand what it means to be king. Because when we think of kings and stuff, we usually think of England. It's kind of colored by that. 
you know, King Charles was crowned king a few weeks ago. But King Charles is king of what's called a constitutional monarchy. That is that while he may be the head of state, he doesn't really rule anything. The prime minister and the parliament, kind of like our president and Congress, they're the ones that run the country. Charles is just there. I'm not really sure what he does. And while Charles may be referred to or given the title of sovereign, he's not really. The, however, the kings of the Bible, they were sovereign. They had all the power and all the authority. You know, we're talking about kings like Nebuchadnezzar, Pharaoh, Caesar, David, Solomon. So when Jesus told this story, the people hearing it thought of that kind of king. A king who was sovereign. And God is indeed that kind of king. God is the king of the universe. Unlike human kings, he didn't inherit his kingdom. He didn't win it or conquer it. He made it. He created it. For that reason, he has the sovereign authority over the entire universe and everyone in it. It's his to rule. He doesn't have to get advice from anyone. He doesn't have to ask permission. He doesn't have to ask favors or forgiveness. He is king. And no one has the right to question him. He can do whatever he wants because he's sovereign. Now, I tell you this to emphasize what the sovereignty of God is, to, to emphasize that he has the right and the power over everything and everyone. Because if we miss that truth, then the rest of the parable really doesn't make sense. Now, by extension, if God is the king, then his son is Jesus Christ. The wedding is the wedding of the lamb referred to in Revelation. Let me read to you Revelation 19. It says, Then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters and like the running of loud thunder, saying, Hallelujah, because our Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory, because the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself. She has been given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, Blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. Did you catch that? Blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. The invitation has gone out to many, but only those who accepted the invitation are at the wedding. And those blessed people at this wedding are the redeemed. This, is, this wedding then is the glorification of God's saints in the end, in heaven. The invitation then is the gospel. So God is the sovereign king. The invitation is the gospel. The wedding is that final glorification of the saints in heaven. So... You got that picture. Now let's look at what this parable is revealing about God. The point of this is it, it reveals both God's grace and his justice. 
And we see these in how he interacts with the four types of people that are in the story. The first type are the people who simply ignored the invitation. We might call this just a passive rejection. We see that a lot. You know, the, the, the first people in verse 5 there, you know, here we have the wedding of all time. The wedding of all weddings. The king of the universe. Yet people simply ignore the invitation. Now, as Jesus told this parable, those people hearing it would have understood that this is referring to the Jews. God's chosen people. The very people for whom this wedding would have been the fulfillment of all their hopes and dreams simply ignored it. The same applies if we extrapolate that today. People today have just simply ignored God. In Romans 1, we're told that God is no secret. He's not kept himself hidden. Romans 1 says, What can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. God's presence, power, and sovereignty is no secret. Now, we can refuse him and we can reject him. We can pretend he's not there, but he is. And he is our rightful king, whether we acknowledge him as that or not. You see, the, the grace of God is shown in his persistence. Even after they've rejected him, he sends his servants to go back and invite them all over again. And again, the first group just kind of ignores him. You know, they give some lame excuses, like we said before. But they don't come. You know, my field. I got to go look at my field. It's a field. It's got grass in it, hopefully. Unless it's summer in Texas, then it's got dirt and weeds. I got my business. I got to go count my money. Yeah, whatever. You know, these, for, these are the people that, for whom God is not a priority. They let the life and work and activities and such the, uh, of, of life kind of take precedence. And they kind of shove God over to the side. Now, they may acknowledge that there is a God. They, uh, they may go to church a couple of times a year, uh, have membership somewhere. Uh, don't really have anything against God. You know, they just don't make him a priority. He's not important to them. As a result, they ignore the invitation to the wedding, the invitation to heaven. They ignore the gospel. Well, the second group, like I said, the second group was a little more demonstrative in their uh, reaction to the invitation. These are the people who uh, grabbed the servants and beat them up and killed them. They don't want to go to the wedding and they're not afraid to say so. They don't simply refuse the invitation. They express disdain for the invitation and aggressively attack and murder the king's servants. And we kind of see this aggressive uh, rejection today when Christians around the world are persecuted for following Christ. Persecuted by uh, leaders of false religions or leaders from uh, secular powers. 
Even in our country, we don't see overt persecution, but sometimes we may see some marginalization or some verbal attacks. But these people who, in the parable, and these people today who react this way to God, they have an arrogance toward God, whereby they see themselves as above the king, as untouchable. There's a commercial on TV for the American Atheists, and at the end, the the tagline has uh, Ron Reagan saying, not afraid to burn in hell. Pretty bold statement. Of course, they can say that because they don't believe in God. They don't believe in hell. They don't believe in judgment. But even though they or we may say something does not exist, doesn't make it go away. In the case of the people in the parable, their actions showed that they felt they were not accountable to the king, that they could do whatever they wanted. But their rebellious, murderous treason was soon confronted with the power of the sovereign king. The king brought down judgment upon them in a very real and final way. It didn't really matter what they thought about the king. The king's authority was just. And when they rebelled against it, they were committing treason. And the sentence for treason is death. And so they were destroyed. Again, Romans 1 speaks to this where he says, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. So you see, even even after God extended grace to these people again and again, they rejected him. And when they still refused to accept the invitation, justice was dispensed. Grace and justice are the hallmarks of our holy king. Now we like grace. But justice is kind of where our modern Western culture tends to struggle. Now, some of that stems from our lack of seeing God as sovereign and acknowledging him as his authority, as having authority over us. Because you see, if you don't see the presence of his authority, you don't see the need for his grace. In our life group recently, we were studying Revelation. And no, the flying locusts do not represent helicopters. One of the things that stood out for me as we were studying this, uh, we studied the, the seal judgments and the uh, trumpets and the bowl judgments and all this stuff. The thing that really stood out to me was the fact that they're progressive. You know, God could have wiped out the world in one fell swoop. He didn't have to go through this process. But each of these judgments is progressive. And after each of these judgments, there is an indication of the response of the people to it. In the beginning, some of the people repented. Toward the end, they cursed God. You know, like I say, God in his sovereignty could have wiped them all out initially. And he would have had every right to do that because they have rebelled against God. They have committed you know, uh, cosmic treason. But instead, he made one last-ditch effort to get their attention. 
That was God's grace, even in the midst of judgment. But grace must have a limit. Because if you keep delaying justice, it's no longer justice. God's grace gives us opportunity after opportunity to come to him. But eventually the judgment must come. And that's what's happened in this story. That's what's happening in our world. What will happen eventually in our future in the last days. God doesn't desire to condemn us. He desires to save us. And he gives us every opportunity to be saved. This is what Jesus is talking about in John 3. Everybody knows John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Well, following that, he goes on and says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned, because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. This is the judgment, Jesus says. The light, that is the Son of God, has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. Christ was not, Jesus Christ is not rejecting us. God's not trying to play, I got you. He didn't send Jesus to condemn us. He extends through him an invitation of grace. It's we who condemn ourselves by rejecting him. God extends the gospel to us. Some, however, would rather cling to their temporary happiness of their sin rather than exchanging it for the eternal joy of Christ. Well, then you have the third group of people. These are the ones who accepted the invitation. They're welcomed at the feast, and they're celebrating in the presence of the king. They see the grace of of the king as a gift. When the others rejected him, the king sent out to the roads of the city to invite whoever wanted to come. Jesus' audience would have seen this as the Gentiles. That's us. And even now, that invitation goes out to everyone. As Jesus said in Mark 8, if anyone anyone wants to follow me, let him take up his cross, deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Notice that when the king sent out his servants, they gathered everyone they found, good or evil. The guests didn't have to prove themselves worthy. They didn't have to make themselves good enough or accomplish some series of tasks or commandments. They were invited to simply come. The implication here is that everything they would need to attend the wedding was provided. This is the grace of God to salvation. He invites us to come without qualifying conditions. Rich, poor, good, bad. This is his invitation to you today. If you want to be included in the wedding of the Lamb, if you want eternal life and eternal joy in the presence of the family of God, you can have that. 
All you have to do is accept the invitation. Well, then there's one other person, one last person that uh, is talked about in this parable. It's kind of a, he's kind of a cautionary tale. A story within a story within a story, if you will. Here's this person. He's standing at the table, the buffet table, as the king's walking by, greeting his guests. Now, the man is not dressed in wedding clothes. Remember I said the wedding clothes were provided. Everything was provided by the king. As a result, the king's upset and has him removed. So this is where we see the intersection of the grace of God, the sovereignty of God, and the justice of God. The man was invited to the wedding. That's grace. As I mentioned before, the king provided the guests with all they needed, including clothes. More grace. Being king, he would have provided an Armani suit. They would have gone to like the men's warehouse and they would have liked the way they look. But here stands this guy in, some of you will understand this, in a polyester green plaid leisure suit. If you're from my generation. Or a pastel sport coat with the sleeves rolled up like Don Johnson. Or low-riding skinny jeans and a flannel shirt. You know, pick your generation. You, you understand what I'm saying. You get the idea. He, you know, he saw himself as totally cool and fashion forward. He didn't have any need for the king's clothes. It was about him. He wanted to come to the wedding, but he didn't want to put on the clothes provided. He wanted to come to the wedding, but he didn't want to honor the king and the son. He just wanted to be there. As a result, he's thrown out. And he's not just escorted off the premises. He's tied up hand and foot and thrown into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, as we hear this, we may think, wow, that's kind of harsh. Yes, it is. But it's also just. You see, this isn't really about a green leisure suit or a dress code. It's about righteousness. When God invites us to himself, he provides all that we need to be saved. This is the grace of God upon the cross. You see, Jesus made a really bad trade in order to help us out. Again, more grace. He took our selfishness, our sinfulness, our filthy rags, and put them on himself to wear. In exchange, he took off his righteousness and his sinlessness and his holiness and covered us with it. He provided the wedding clothes. If we refuse them, then we can't stay at the wedding. We can sometimes have this sort of an arrogant uh, complacency when we come to the presence of God. We think we can enter into the holiness of God by virtue of our own self-righteousness. 
our own goodness, as it were. And that God should just accept us like we are. You know, I've heard this more than once, that if God is really loved, then God would let everyone into heaven. Well, that might be loving, but it's not just. That would be like a parent allowing their kid to do whatever they wanted to do because they loved them. We know as parents that sometimes no is necessary because we love them. We set limits because we love them. As Tim Keller said, God sees us as we are. He loves us as we are and he accepts us as we are. But by his grace, he does not leave us as we are. Our best is nowhere near the righteousness of Christ. Isaiah says in Isaiah 64, our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Our best is nowhere near good enough. And it can't stand in the presence of God's holiness. So in order that we might be saved, Jesus gave us his holiness. Think about that. Think about what Jesus did on the cross. When the world weighs in upon you, telling you that you're worthless, that you're insignificant, or even when you tell yourself those things, think about this. Your value is such that you were bought with the very blood of God. Think about that. Let me say that again. Your value is such that you were bought with the very blood of God. And remember, he's sovereign. Almighty God and King. He is under no obligation to do anything. But he does it anyway. He gives his blood freely because he loves you that much. He values you that much. The question for us then is, are we hanging our eternal future on church attendance? On generosity? Our tithing record? Our good deeds? Being a nice person? None of those things are bad, but none of those things will get you into heaven. Only by being clothed in the righteousness of Christ can we enter in. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The sovereignty of God is that he has established the law and the consequences for breaking that law. The justice of God is that he follows that law. As such, our treasonous rebellion requires a sentence of death. Yet, the grace of God is that if we accept his invitation, he will give his life in our place. He will absorb the cost of our rebellion. Notice that for all these people in this parable, and for us as well, there are really only two choices. Accept the invitation, the gospel, 
or reject it. Accepting brings you into the presence of God. Adoption into his family. And eventually a great celebration in heaven. Rejection removes you from his presence. To a place of death and destruction. And the wrath of judgment. What will you do? Will you accept his wedding robe? Or stand condemned in your own self-righteousness? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you provide a way to yourself. Thank you for leaving us, not leaving us destitute in our sin and slavery. Help us, Lord, to see you clearly today. Help those of us who know you, Lord, to live in your power and your presence. And for those who do not know you, Lord, Give them the faith they need to come to you and join the wedding feast. For yours is the power and the glory forever and ever. In the name and the power of Jesus Christ, amen.